Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello and welcome to the Podcast Hour. I'm Richard Scott and each week I put on my headphones, listen to hours of audio and share the best shows I find among the 660,000 podcasts out there today. Coming up, stories about sound. From cartoon sound effects to what space really sounds like. And the story of this. Then Chat 10 Looks 3 offers good banter between two mates in the Aussie media. Well, I'm actually dressed quite attractively right now because I'm on my way to the party. You, however, (laughs) you do look like you have given up on life. And I've helped you with that. (laughs) Plus a 1927 horror story by a cult author gets reimagined for the podcast age. The story we uncovered... The story that we're still uncovering, this one is not over yet and we don't know how deep it's going to go. This has to be the single strangest thing any of us at the Mystery Machine have ever encountered. And before we go, Space Bridge. Stand by to set levels on the Moscow Receive. The trippy true story of a plan to get Americans and Russians talking to each other during the Cold War. And next time you hear something good, then please do let me know about it. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. <laughs> 20,000 hertz is the highest frequency the human ear can hear. It's also the name of a podcast for anyone who's interested in why things sound the way they do. Host Dallas Taylor's a sound designer and studio engineer who mixes TV shows, video games and films. And each episode takes you behind the world's most recognisable and interesting sounds. So its back catalogue of 60 plus episodes covers topics like movie trailers, Siri, Muzak, ASMR and noise pollution. Here's a few examples, starting with one all about cartoon sound effects with the sound designer Heather Olson. Cartoon sound effects are different from live action sound effects because with live action, you start with production sound. You're recording a picture and they're recording the audio at the same time, wherever the actors are. So if they're on a street, you have cars going by. Whereas in a cartoon, if you're doing a street scene, all I get is dialogue. It's just the actors who are recorded and I get to start with a blank slate. I don't have to try to hide production backgrounds. I get to get the dialogue and I get to create a world around it. It's kind of the best thing and the worst thing at the same time to work on a cartoon because you're not trying to hide anything, but you have nothing to start with. So in your head, you have to think, what would this sound like? Much like Mark's time at Hanna-Barbera, Heather gets a fully animated show and often adds sound effects from a ready-made library of sounds. This includes many from the Hanna-Barbera and Warner Brothers libraries. Here are some of her favorites. It's called the tube thunk sound effect. I think everybody knows what this sounds like. Maybe not what it's called, but it's that Sound like when a character gets their head stuck in a jar, you hear that thunk. I love that old sound. It just so clearly conveys my head is stuck in this jar and it's not coming out again. 
And I also love all the old running sounds. And I'm using the xylophone blink controls all the time. Those sounds, I think, have just persisted in everybody's mind and in every show because that's a language that we've started to understand. So when someone blinks, you kind of expect to hear that xylophone at this point. And of course, Heather uses the falling whistle. I think in our sound effects library, it's called bomb drop, but it's the same thing. I mean, that's another piece of the language that everybody knows. Since some of the shows she works on are more realistic, Heather wants us to hear the sounds of the characters moving around and interacting with their world, kind of like a live-action movie. The Foley department really brings the show to life. They record footsteps, things characters touch, which we call props. They do more of the smaller sounds, and it's great to have Foley doing that instead of a library because then you're not hearing the same footsteps over and over. They really make it sound more real. And just like in the past, if you can't find a sound, you have to make it. One of the stranger things I've actually recorded and done myself for a sound effect is we had a bit in Robot Monster where everyone was in a crowded restaurant, so it was supposed to be this crowd of people gagging and grossed out by something. And that's not exactly an effect I had sitting around in my library. So I grabbed a bunch of people around the office, and we recorded ourselves gagging in lots of different ways. And then I kind of pieced it all together into a crowd. Sometimes, layering multiple sounds together is the best way to create something new. An odd combination that you might not expect, and I did not invent this, Animals and engines is a really great one. You put animal roars under engines, growls. It really kind of brings a vehicle to life. A lot of shows do it, but Star Wars, definitely. The TIE Fighters, there's some growls under there as they go by. I've actually flown one of these before. It's fantastic. Inspiration. Some of classic cartoon sound effects written and produced by James Intracasso. Now, more sounds and sonic branding is something we're exposed to on TV, radio and online on a daily basis. So how can you capture a business's whole corporate identity in a sound that lasts just a few seconds? Well, more than 20 years ago now, Walter Wezawa came up with an iconic audio logo you'll have heard for the computer chip and processor maker Intel. And it's still going strong. I realized this is a very strange task and you can barely say a meaningful sentence in three seconds. First, I thought it's easy. I tried a couple of things and everything felt incomplete or naive or absolutely out of place. And I opened up books to get inspired, like our scores and went to the Mozarts and Beatles and whatever there was available. And... It never felt good and because it came too much from a musical standpoint and not from what is needed. And um, writing a mnemonic is not like writing a symphony. I have done that and it's a totally different center in your brain and in emotion and your heart than doing audio branding. Then Walter had an epiphany. He thought... If this was a song, the tagline would be Intel Inside. It would have four accents or four notes to mimic that phrase. Now, Walter was getting somewhere. And since I heard about Intel, they're engineers, and it's super precise, and 
in a sense, there's some coldness behind that and precision. Four straight eight notes would resemble that best. It's like very pum, 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 pum for the rhythm. And that felt good and mathematical. Then I went to the next step. What could be the melody? And since they ask for something which doesn't have any cultural connotation, it has to sound and feel the same in an Arabic place than in somewhere in Asia or in Europe or in Africa. I thought there are just two intervals which are very powerful but open and don't have any zooming into just one culture. It's the fourth and the fifth. He also added a single note at the beginning. Walter called it a palate cleanser. It's a sound that helps get your ears ready for the rest of the logo. So basically I constructed it. It's not even composing. I was thinking what works best. And that became my methodology. And um, I explained that to Intel. Everybody said, well, yeah, that concept works. So how does it sound? And then Walter played his new audio logo for the Intel executives. And it was a huge hit. We all have some kind of synesthesia going on when we hear sounds and we associate colors with it. So that sound seems to be blue and has a little of electricity in there, power in there, and it's positive and inviting. There's some wooden organic instruments in there which help to connect to the human, basically being in charge of the power and technology and so it so it really tells it my story a clip from the sonic branding episode written and produced by kevin eds and finally here's an episode that imagines sound in space and what you might be able to hear on other planets the best marketing tagline in movie history may have been from the ridley scott film alien in space no one can hear you scream that phrase is true And not only because of the distance from Earth, it has to do with how sound travels. You don't have sound in space because sound requires molecules. That's Dr. Lori Glaze from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Lori oversees about 300 scientists that study all the planets and small bodies of our solar system. You have to be able to move the molecules with the sound waves. And without the molecules there, the sound just doesn't move. You can try and use your lungs to push the sound out of your mouth, but it won't travel anywhere. That tagline from Alien I mentioned earlier, no one actually heard that either, as it was never read as voiceover in the trailer. It was just text, silent text, perhaps meant to imitate the specific science that explains how sound travels, or how it doesn't travel. My name is Keith Knoll. I'm the chief of the Planetary Systems Lab at Goddard Space Flight Center. I think I've studied almost every planet or satellite in the solar system that has an atmosphere. Sound as we think about it could be vastly different in other places in our solar system. Keith has some ideas on how other planets might sound to our ears. What is sound? It's the vibrations of uh, molecules in the air. It's a, it's a pressure wave. But, of course... Sound can be transmitted through any kind of physical medium. So if you uh, are in a swimming pool, you can still hear sound. Uh, That's being transmitted through water. Earthquakes are essentially sound waves being transmitted through the solid Earth. 
Sound takes on many forms, but the kind that we're most familiar with is pressure waves moving through gas. The most common example of how different gases affect your vocal cords is the old party trick of breathing in a helium balloon. As the gas is, you're pushing it back out of your lungs over your vocal cords. Your voice sounds high-pitched just like this. Because the density is lower, the vibration frequencies end up being higher, and that's why you sound like Mickey Mouse. Let's go from planet to planet in our solar system to find out what each surface would sound like to our ears. To be clear, though, you'd pretty much die instantly everywhere, except for here. But for these examples, we're going to pretend to have superhuman powers that will keep us alive. So with that disclaimer out of the way, let's start closest to the sun. Places like Mercury and these rocky bodies with no atmospheres would be similar to being in space. There would not be much sound, if any. Well, Mercury is an airless body, so, you know, we're back to listening for Mercury quakes, essentially. That would be, you know, really the only source of sound. And you could only hear these Mercury quakes if your head was pressed up against the rock, because there's no atmosphere for traditional sound to travel through. Next up, Venus. In my mind, what sound would be like on the surface, because you have this really dense atmosphere, much denser than Earth's, the sound would be more like or tend toward what things sound like when you're underwater. If you could imagine something in between air and water, that kind of density, you're running your hand through that and you would feel that. If you were to just materialize on the surface in that environment of 900 degrees Fahrenheit and 100 times our atmospheric pressure, you would first be crushed and then you would probably just burn up completely. One thing we do know about Venus is that it has lightning. So you might hear thunder. I wonder what other things, like my voice might sound like. I'm on Venus, in this ethereal world that's a mix between a gas-like atmosphere and water. I'm almost floating, but yet it's not as restrictive as being submerged in water. My voice, the thunder, it's all slightly muffled and distorted as it travels through the thick atmosphere. The Space Remix, episode number 57 of 20,000 Hertz, written and produced by Kevin Eds and hosted by Dallas Taylor. My pal Christina put me onto a show she enjoys called Chat 10 Looks 3. In it, two well-known Australian journalists and media personalities, Lee Sales and Annabelle Crabb, get together to chat about their lives outside of work, so the books they're reading, what they're watching, cooking and generally enjoying. It feels like you're getting privileged inside access into a genuine, clever and kind female friendship. That's despite the many creative ways they have of teasing each other. Here's a slice of the show with Annabelle Crabb about to head off to a party and Lee Sales wearing that well-known item of clothing, the frump nighty. 
As part of painting the picture of our uh, evening, I left out one of the most important things, which is what I'm wearing. What are you wearing? <laughs> Come on. So I get a text Go message on. from Annabelle Crabb earlier this week. She goes, I've just run past your house. I've dropped off a bag of kids' clothes, left it out the front. And uh, your door was open and I just dropped it out the front, which I know is massively rude because I could actually see you. I'm just, <laughs> I know. But I'm just like, I don't have a, I don't have a second to talk. To even like, say hello no, that's to right. one of your dearest friends. Correct. So, and I, the thing is that you have done that exact thing to me. Of course before, I have. So yeah. I, I do it, it all the time. Fine. Yep. So also I had to be like, honestly, this recording studio where I was doing voiceover for this program was like right over the other side of town. I was already, you know, in a highly strung state of <laughs> just twanging stress. So I was just like, I'm just dropping this bag. I'm not talking about you, bastard, because <laughs> I'm listening to the news. So she texted me, I've dropped a bag of stuff out the front of your place. Mm. And a frump nighty, it says. And that's all it basically says. And a frump nighty. So I'm thinking, why she drops me off a frump nighty? Anyway, so I've put it on. Mm. It certainly is frumpy. It's a gigantic – the closest thing that I think it is like is – what it's pretty much identical to what Marina Abramovich was wearing in The Artist is Present. That's right. Except it's black and not red. It's like neck to knee coverage. No, neck to ankle coverage, actually. Yeah. I've got one in grey mal and I love it. I love it uncontrollably. How did you get onto these things? It's, uh, I bought it from a website that just sells, like, you know, you know. It's not a good website. It's one of those ones that you, you just like, well, this seems suspiciously cheap and, and I don't really shop there very often. But for a neck-to-knee uh, coverall situation. And um, are you wanting me to never have sex with anyone ever again? Or? That's my aim, yes. Uh, I will come and live with you here and we will just – be entirely chaste, but also <laughs> covered from neck to ankle. I actually think any men who walked God, in so good. would not only be turned off, they might actually even be scared. Well, I'm actually dressed quite attractively right now because I'm on my way to the party. You, however, <laughs> you do look like you have given up on life. And I've helped you with that. <laughs> i tell you what, though, I do love, particularly when the season turns, I do love a garment that just you know, says, hi, I'm here for you, down to the wrist. And it's not even a shortened wrist. It's just a full wrist coverage and then to the ankle. Look, so I, if I, you'd yeah. like to put a woolly sock on underneath, that's fine. Oh, look, you could be wearing really sexy underwear. <laughs> underwear. I, I, I don't know. I think that, You could be uh, wearing a riot of lingerie. I'm sure that there is. From the look of you, I'd say probably not. <laughs> I'm sure that there's some sicko out there with a fetish for, you know, sacks who'd be into it. But, no, look, it is it is the sort of thing that I'd live in. And do you know what the greatest asset is? It pockets. has pockets. Yeah, I know. Yes. You still do look quite lovely. <laughs> You've still got nice hair from your show. I do have nice hair from my show. Yeah. Um, That'll right. all be in ruins by dawn. Now, anyway. you've got – you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I did – so we did uh, do a couple of recent podcasts, mm-hmm. but I did with a sense of urgency contact you uh, a day or two ago just to and say, did. God, do you think we could squeeze one more in before I go? <laughs> I feel – Why is the I feel like a D.H. Lawrence flower, <laughs> like a bud. 
Why is the tone of this thing just, it's like that time in that Perth hotel room. No, it's because I've just been at Gwen's house. Oh. She gave me a glass of wine and just some horrible innuendo. That's that's pretty much where I'm coming from. (laughs) Hi, Gwen. Hi, Gwen. Um, Okay, now I'll tell you what I want to talk about because you told me the other day that you watched it with your kids. The Karate Kid. Oh, yeah. So I just, we had a really lazy Easter where – because we're going away, I just was like, okay, I'm going to eradicate pantry moth from my kitchen. Oh, that took God, about a day and a half. No, no, yes. okay, I'm just saying, <laughs> yes. as you know, that that happened. It took a long time. Good. By the way, they're back. Like it's oh, just, God. it's really. I saw a lot of yeah. social media about this when I, I was away. I know. It makes me feel like I'm not alone. Seriously, that's happening a lot. Um, but. It was really good. We didn't go anywhere. We babysat some awesome dogs of our friends. So, like, we did lots of walking around parks and, um, you know, making animals jump for treats and things like that, which is, like, very seldom happens in my house ordinarily. So that was good. And um, on one of the nights I just thought, I'd sit down and watch a family movie, but not one of these sort of like loathsome contemporary ones. I want to go back and watch a really daggy old movie. And like I've got a bunch of movies that I'm like lining up for when my 11-year-old daughter is like ready to watch them. Um, like what sort of stuff? Oh, look, just like I, I really want to watch High Society. Oh, and yeah, okay, right. Philadelphia yeah. Story. Right, right, right. Like those sorts of basically anything with Jimmy Stewart in it kind of films. Right. Um, I also want to watch a series of sort of Shakespeare adaptations. Right. I've really like got her prepped for that by getting her to read like those Lambs adaptations of Shakespeare's stories, which she's right into. So then I'm going to get her into some sort of modern adaptations like. That he, that great Heath Ledger, Julia Stiles film, Ten Things I Hate About You, which right. is like a, a teen adaptation of The Taming of the Shrew. It's, mm-hmm. I love that movie. It's right. super trash, but I love it. Um, anyway, so – but I needed something that my eight-year-old and five-year-old would also be sort of reasonably okay to watch. Mm. Anyway, I was just sort of like flicking around and thought, The Karate Kid. I had never seen The Karate Kid when I was a kid. Oh. I know. Why? It was one of my and my brother's favourite films. Okay. Well, so I never saw it. I blame my mother for that. Like we just weren't really – we didn't go to the cinema very much. When we did, it was a big palaver and we always had to take home-baked biscuits. Like there was none of this sort of – We had it on a VHS when we recorded it off the TV. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I never – I just missed it. I didn't see it. Right. So um, we sat down and watched it as a family and it was like one of those great occasions where I just hadn't seen it either. So and it was, so does that mean for any time in the past 45 years when someone said to you, wax on, wax off, you've had no idea no, what they're talking I know. about? I know what that means. Like, you <laughs> right. know, I'm one of those kids that grew up in a country area, so I'm like, I've never seen a car wash, but I understand <laughs> from popular culture that it looks like this. You really do right. evolve. Like you get you get very adept at filling in your gaps. Right. Yeah, I'm like, what's a cappuccino? <laughs> so that funny. sort of thing. So like, I'm like, oh yeah, what's on? Yeah, Mr Miyagi. Yeah, totally. Yeah, all over it. The crane. Yeah, I've always been. What keen about on... the end bit? Yeah, amazing. <laughs> I've always been keen on bonsai since that film. But anyway, so so what did you actually? Well, you are keen on bonsai for so. I many... love bonsai. Wow, that is just the least <laughs> surprising thing I've ever heard. So you're just 
controlling the natural environment, <laughs> stunting it and bending it to your will. I have no idea why that would appeal to you. Oh, excuse me. It appeals what? to me because it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. <laughs> Stunted. <laughs> crippled by your dominant needs. <laughs> sure, yeah. I just want to point out we're not drinking wine while we're doing this. I'm sweating under this I know. goddamn sack. Can I just um, – I'm going to not only am I going to look unattractive, I'm going to have BO. I've got like a third of a glass of mineral water yeah. and you've served me a, like a little bowl <laughs> that has what appears to be the ass of an Easter bunny, yeah. like a chocolate I bunny. Put it you on snap s- the ass off it. I bought it on special today. I know. And it's, it's served in a bowl like it's a lovely snack. But actually it's, it's just a the bunny's bun. ass. Of a bunny. Do you know what? I don't know why wow. I did this today. I So I'm in Coles getting the groceries. Fortunately, I've already eaten. <laughs> Otherwise, this would be incredibly tempting. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to have to strip off. This thing is so hot. It's like wearing canvas. <laughs> um, no, I was in Coles today. I'm walking past all the Easter stuff. I, I must have eaten a good kilo and a half of chocolate last weekend. I see that the lint bunnies are half off, so I bought a heap of them. Like, what's wrong with me? What is wrong with you? Because that's madness. Annabelle Crabb and Lee Sales with some of episode 80 of Chat 10 Looks 3 called The Frump Nighty. The case of Charles Dexter Ward by the American horror writer H.P. Lovecraft is a story that only got published after his death. Now it gets a modern makeover, 90-odd years after it was written. And one of the interesting things about this remake of something written back in 1927 is the way it plays around with the podcast format. There's the subject matter. It sounds very much like a true crime show. There are also the formal elements like scratchy old audio, voice recordings, ads and some clever editing and sound design. At least one scene will have you jumping out of your skin, I guarantee it. And there's a narrative device we've seen before in shows like Serial and S-Town, the central voice of a slightly bemused, naive narrator who seems to be trying to solve the mystery at the same time as we're trying to make sense of it. A little housekeeping before we start. Mystery Machine is just one of the podcasts we make here at Red Hook Stories. I'd urge you to check out the collection of oddities in Catherine Melman's History of Crime series, Bite Size Noir, and Kevin Dobbs's reportage show, Here and Now. That's here, H-E-A-R. You can find details of both at the Red Hook website and subscribe through whatever podcast software you use. Our shows are not advertiser-funded because we like to keep the audio clean and honest. Our financing comes direct from you, the listeners. If you like our shows and if you'd like to hear more of them, head over to our crowdfunding site where, for a modest monthly donation, you can get a whole load of behind-the-scenes goodies, merchandise and previews of forthcoming episodes. Details of that are on the Red Hook website too. OK, admin over. If this is your first time listening to The Mystery Machine, you've picked a perfect time to join us. We're starting a brand new story today and we think this one is going to be really interesting. We don't know where it ends up because we haven't got to the bottom of it ourselves yet. But what we've uncovered so far is, well, intriguing doesn't really do it justice. I'm Matthew Hayward, and this is The Mystery Machine. (laughs) 
we're always on the lookout for stories. Even when we're in the middle of one, we're always keeping our ears to the ground for the next thing. That means always being alert to those little snippets of information that might indicate there's something buried that's worth digging up. What we're looking at from today started life as a locked room mystery. On the 6th of March 2017, a man went missing from a secure psychiatric hospital just outside Providence, Rhode Island. The last person to see the man that night had been his doctor, who had visited him in his room. According to multiple accounts, doctor and patient spoke for about an hour, then the doctor left and the patient was locked in for the night. When the orderlies entered his room the next morning, he wasn't there. The door was locked from the outside, the windows were secured. No way in or out, but no patient. So that's interesting enough, it's, it's strange. Maybe someone let him out, that's the most logical explanation. But the police interviewed everyone and they seemed satisfied that no one had done that. There was nothing on the CCTV and the guard in the corridor outside swore that he hadn't left his post. So it's like the start of a Sherlock Holmes mystery, except there just doesn't seem to be an answer to this one, improbable or not. And so if something is that much of a mystery, if it's actually unsolvable, then we don't have a show. We always need a thread to pull, something we can build a story around. And in this case, there just didn't seem to be a thread. So we moved on. And at the time, we instead told the story of Wayne Dawson and the disappearance of those five women in Nottingham back in the 1890s. That turned out to be one of our most popular stories. If you haven't checked it out, you can find the episodes on our website. So, now cut to two months ago. Kennedy Fisher, our investigator extraordinaire, had planted a flag, as she calls it. I absolutely did not call <laughs> what it did that. What did you call it then? <laughs> I didn't call it anything. <laughs> I set up some news alerts, like I always do if we move on from something, in case the story develops. Uh, all right, well, do you want to pick it up? Sure. So, the last person to see Charles Ward... Uh, that's the missing patient's name. You didn't do that yet? I was saving it up. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. The last person to see him was his psychiatrist, Dr. Jonathan Willett. Now, Willett gave a statement to the police at the time, and there was no suggestion that he did anything wrong or was involved in the disappearance in any way. But two months ago, my news alert pings. An American psychiatrist, Dr. Jonathan Willett, has been sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Lucy Hawthorne at her home in Highgate in May this year. The court heard that Willett forced his way into Miss Hawthorne's home and stabbed her multiple times with a kitchen knife. Dr. Willett had apparently been experiencing an acute paranoid schizophrenic episode and the judge sent him to Broadmoor, which, for those of you who don't know, is a high-security psychiatric facility down in Berkshire. So Willett came to England. This distinguished psychiatrist with no criminal record, no history of mental disturbance, and he murdered a woman. And that may have had nothing whatsoever to do with the missing patient back in Rhode Island... But Kennedy saw it as a weird little coincidence. And I don't believe in coincidences. So now there was a thread, and we started pulling it. And the story we uncovered, the story that we're still uncovering, this one is not over yet, and we don't know how deep it's going to go. This has to be the single strangest thing any of us at the Mystery Machine have ever encountered. We're calling it... The case of Charles Dexter Ward.
So, what has prompted this sudden interest in your ancestry, Charles? Well, I don't think it's sudden. Does it seem sudden? Well, perhaps it's just new to me. I want to know who I am. In the sense that... In every sense. I don't think I'm the person they think I am. Well, who's they? People. You. My family. Your family don't know who you are? My mother did. But she lied. What did she lie about, Charles? I was up in the attic and I found something. She had one of those old files, you know, those things that stretch out? Uh, a concertina file? A birth certificate was in there. My grandfather, her father, that's not the name on the birth certificate. What's the name? Joseph Kerwin. So that was Dr Jonathan Willett talking to Charles Dexter Ward when Ward was, what, 17? Yeah, he just turned 17. His mother had died a few months before. So is that why he's seeing Dr Willett? No. Ward had been seeing Willett as a patient pretty much since eighth grade. Which, for the British listeners... Uh, like 13 years old. So he'd been seeing a psychiatrist since he was 13. Yeah, but there's stuff we do and don't know here. Willett recorded a, a bunch of their conversations. I guess that was his practice. And some of those tapes are on record from when Charles Ward disappeared, and they were part of the investigation. But there's a whole bunch of client-patient confidentiality stuff, which means that what we have is incomplete. And so there's some guesswork we're having to do. It seems like Charles was a problem kid from way before his mother died. Do we know what she died of? We do. She was hit by a car. A hit and run, so they never caught the guy. OK, so there was no illness or anything that might have caused Charles distress when he was younger? Not that we know of. Charles Ward had been taken out of school when he was 15 years old. Apparently he wasn't a good fit. He was a loner. Kind of weird. Weird how? Well, I tracked down the principal of the school Ward was attending in ninth grade. Uh, her name was Claire Rushmore. She asked us not to name the school and she doesn't work there anymore, but she certainly seems to have remembered Charles Ward. Well, I'm not sure. It seems unprofessional. You spoke to the police, to... Mrs. Rushmore, when they were investigating Charles Ward's disappearance. Well, yes, but I... So uh, that's a matter of public record. I'm not asking you to tell me anything you didn't say to them. No, well, I suppose he was a difficult boy. And that's not what we have difficult. All schools have difficult children. But Charles Ward was more than that. There was a darkness to him. What do you mean by darkness? Well, he, he was anti-authority, certainly. But again, we always have a few pupils like that. Often they come from difficult backgrounds, though. And I don't think that could be said of Charles. Uh, he didn't mix well. Was he bullied? Oh, no, I should say not. If anything, the other children were afraid of him. So he was violent? No, not violent. I understand this is a little frustrating. The police had the same issue when I talked to them. The truth is, it was not something you could put a finger on. It was just a... There was something about him that prompted disquiet, maybe, you could say. Something that was kind of off. The other children seemed to sense it, as his teachers, too. And you talked to Mr. and Mrs. Ward about this? Oh, I did, yes, on a number of occasions. 
She said that sometimes when you bring parents in, they tell you that they don't recognize your description of their child. Uh, the kid's not like this at home and so on. And sometimes she said that really is the case. And other times, you know, they're just being defensive, which is understandable, I guess. No one wants to accept that their kid is difficult. But in the case of Mr. and Mrs. Ward... Well, I, the father... I just think he wasn't around very much. I, I don't think he had a close relationship with Charles, and certainly there was a sense that he felt he had better things to do than be hauled into see the school principal. But the mother, uh, I think Mrs. Ward connected with what I was saying. I think she was scared. Of her son? I think so. Some of the case of Charles Dexter Ward, written and directed by Julian Simpson and produced by Karen Rose with sound engineering from David Thomas. And that's a Sweet Talk production for BBC Radio 4. It's a far-out true story featuring New Age thinking, the space race, dream telepathy, the Grateful Dead and ESP. They were all part of a wacky plan to defuse tensions between the US and the USSR at the height of the Cold War. With the world living under the threat of nuclear attack, the idea was to bypass the diplomats and the censors and link up normal people in America and Russia using these two-way satellite link-ups called space bridges. This is all going on, remember, at a time when you could barely make a phone call between the two countries. But these public video conferences were championed by a group of tech and communication enthusiasts, including one of the founders of Apple. Smartly scripted and triply scored, Spacebridge from Radiotopia's showcase tells the story of this out-there chapter in international relations. Yet we know that Russia today is regarded as a grave threat to our nation, to our freedom. Good morning. Yes. Please let's turn this on. Why so? What makes it a threat? To ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire. To simply call the arms race. Here in Russia, you see the reason why we are spending billions of dollars in defense production. Built a satellite instead of making research on each other can connect people for free. It starts with a phone call. Phone rings in Astankara, the Moscow television tower. A concrete space needle whose shadow circles the expanse of the city and whose broadcasts blanket the entire Soviet Union. The year is 1982. The phone that's ringing is the special red phone, the one that usually takes calls from the Kremlin. Only as soon as he hears the pinched voice on the other end, the man in the tower, Enrikas Yuskevichus, he knows this is no party boss. Something about a meeting, urgent, no, can't wait. He's on his way over, now. He's with two Americans. One of them is a cosmonaut. Astronauts, they call them in the U.S. It all sounds like the setup to a bad joke. And the last thing any Communist Party man with a good job, controlling television programming across the Soviet Union, for example, where the last thing he wants is to end up a punchline. Within an hour, he's staring at three men across a table in his office. <clears throat> a ridiculous trio, really. Of course, how could he forget the Soviet, the one who placed the call? He'd met Joseph Golden a couple years before the 1980 Olympic Games. 
when Golden showed up at his door, claiming he had a method to teach Russians English at superhuman speed. Then, as now, Yuskevichus had the distinct impression Golden was insane and wondered if the same applied to the visitors with him. Take that American sitting next to Golden, hmm. disheveled with a comb over. When the American hands over his card, it reads Jim Hickman, Esalen Soviet American Exchange Program. But there is that astronaut, Rusty Schweikert, from the Apollo 9 mission. Tall, impressive, red-haired, if only he didn't smile so much. They have no interpreter except for this strange man, this Joseph Golden. So our bureaucrat switches to English, then wishes he hadn't, because the trio, assuming no language barrier, are soon speaking in a breathless mass. About California, about a festival, about computers, about American Labor Day, which, as far as Yuskevich just knew, had almost nothing to do with the proletariat, and about a satellite hookup that Yuskevich just was nearly positive had almost nothing to do with reality. Imagine a link from here, this tower, to there, live, uncensored. The U.S. and the Soviet Union linked via satellite for millions of people to watch. <laughs> what these three were proposing was clearly dangerous. Yuskevichus had learned that relentless predictability was what made for safe, okay, sometimes boring television in the Soviet Union. That lesson had certainly helped him rise, literally rise, in the towering Gostela Radio Space Needle to the office and rank he had now, vice president. And maybe this ridiculous trio really did somehow speak for the Kremlin or even the White House. It was hard to say. Yuskevich just excuses himself from the trio and exits the room to make his own phone call. It was time to pick up the red phone again to speak to the Kremlin. This time, for real. From Showcase, a production of PRX's Radiotopia, this is Space Bridge, the story of DIY diplomats who changed our world. I'm Charles Maines, a reporter in Moscow, and I've been reporting this story with Julia Barton. Hey. Producer in New York. And over the next four episodes, we're going to bring you a strange and sprawling saga of American idealists and Soviet dreamers. People who thought if they could just get folks in their two countries talking, they could end the Cold War. At the time, it was hard even to place a phone call between the United States and the Soviet Union. And so their citizens on opposite sides of the globe reached out to one another through outer space. Chapter One, The Astronaut. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control, coming up on three minutes and 50 seconds. On March 3rd, 1969, Rusty Schweikert was sitting in the cockpit of Apollo 9. Outside at Cape Kennedy, crowds were eager to see the Saturn V rocket blast off and to see the U.S. earn another point against the Soviets in the space race. But inside, Schweikert was bored. It's much more exciting from the beach, <laughs> watching it and seeing all that smoke and fire. Schweikert had put in thousands of hours of mission training. He'd never been to space before, but already it all felt routine. They close the door and you're right back in the simulator. And you've done it a hundred times and you lay there and during the countdown, you may doze off and catch some sleep. Five. And then they count backward down to zero. And 
One. And off you go. Zero. And somehow it's anti-climax. Once Schweikert and the rest of the crew made it to low Earth orbit, everything was predictable and a bit nauseating. Just a lot of floating around in a tiny capsule, following the flight plan and taking readings. One, three, two, zero, zero, and you've already got the nav check. The tedium is intentional. It keeps the astronauts focused on the tasks at hand, so there aren't surprises. One small correction, uh, the last number in the CSM weight is four. Yeah, I guess I wrote it right and read it wrong. And so they're not thinking about how life and death each moment is, especially when doing EVAs, extravehicular activities, in layman's term, a spacewalk. And now you transfer from the spacecraft, which has become home to you, and you know it, and your umbilical to that mother is real, and it works, and you've lived on it, and now you sever that and go on to this one that you're carrying on your back. A few years after his mission in 1974, Schweikert gave a speech about that spacewalk. He and his crewmate were testing an external transfer between the command module and the lunar landing module, the LEM, they called it. And you let all that precious oxygen flow out the door of the lunar module. And now you're living in your own spaceship. And you go out the door. And outside on the, on the front porch of the LEM, you watch the sunrise over the Pacific. And it's an incredible sight. Beautiful, beautiful sight. But once again, the schedule and the monotony keep you focused. But don't look at it because you really don't have time. You see, you've really got to get moving. That flight plan says you're behind again. Schweikert was going about his business, following the flight plan to the second. He and his colleague Dave Hill are in their spacesuits, and Hill is supposed to be photographing him. But then his camera jams. Ground control gives him five minutes to fix it. Five minutes when Rusty Schweikert suddenly has nothing to do. And so we have just a moment to think about what it is we're doing. And his mind opens. I just decided to be a human being in space, not an astronaut. This is Rusty Schweikert now. And all of a sudden, all these questions started coming in. How did I get here? Why am I here? What's this all about? Why is it me? What responsibility do I have as a result of this? All these things came flooding through my mind as I'm taking in this incredibly beautiful and totally silent scene. Rusty Schweikert has been thinking about that moment ever since when he opened his mind to what he was seeing as he sped over oceans and continents. When you go around it in an hour and a half, you begin to recognize that your identity is with that whole thing. And that makes a change. From where you see it, the thing is a whole and it's so beautiful. And you, and you wish you could take one in each hand and say, look, one from each side. Look at it from this perspective. Look at that, what's important? 
Schweikert returned to Earth a changed man. But astronauts were not encouraged to get spiritual about space. He kept his thoughts to himself. Some of Space Bridge, presented by Julia Barton and Charles Maines, and that's a production of Showcase from PRX's Radiotopia. And that's about it from us for now, as well as Space Bridge. This week we've been listening to 20,000 Hertz, Chat 10 Looks 3, and The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. And please do keep your podcast recommendations coming in to me at pods at rnz.co.nz. I'd really like to receive them. And until next week, from me, Richard Scott, thanks for listening, and enjoy the rest of your weekend. See you. Thanks for listening to the Podcast Hour from RNZ. If you're finding it helpful to find new stuff to listen to, then please do consider rating or reviewing us with as many stars as you can manage wherever you get your podcasts from and tell your friends and family about us too. And if you're writing a review, then do let us know what you like about the show or how it could be improved. So if you'd like to hear longer clips, more interviews with the people making the shows that we feature... And if four shows is about the right number to highlight each week, that kind of stuff, it would be really helpful to know. Thanks a lot. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.